Well, we don't normally practice self-baptism in our church, but (laughs) I bet you'll never forget that one, will you? I think we ought to also acknowledge today, it's a really quite an auspicious day for England as they, for the first time in 55 years, are, are playing in the Euro Cup soccer match. Um, I think that anyone in our, our, uh, our congregation who is from England is probably pretty excited <laughs> about that match, which will start at noon today. On a completely unrelated note, if you have any pastoral concerns that you would like to talk to a pastor about... Um, Pastor Ellis will be available at noon (laughs) for a good long conversation, 60 minutes, maybe even 90 uh, minutes. (laughs) Speaking of the UK, we have a dear friend from my university days in St. Andrews, Scotland, and she visited us for the first time in 1994. And as we were driving around, Marjorie pointed to uh, some buildings and said, what's that? And we said, well, those are storage units. And she said, storage units? For what? I said, well, that's where people put the stuff they don't need and for which they don't have room in their houses. She paused for a moment and she said, your houses are massive. Why would you ever need extra room? And if you don't need the stuff, why would you pay to store it? You know, a funny thing about it, when new eyes see stuff that you have grown familiar with, it, it helps you see it in a whole different way. If you don't need the stuff, why would you pay to store it? I remember thinking, that's a really good question. And yet the storage business in America is going crazy. I spoke to a friend this last week who builds them for a living, and they cannot keep up with the demand. And there are presently 2.2 billion square feet of personal storage in the United States, and it's on the rise. We've never had more stuff as a nation. We have never been wealthier as a nation. Our homes are three times larger than they were in the 50s, and our families are half the size that they were in the 50s. And we rarely stay in our beautiful homes more than five years because we rarely stay at a job more than about five years. We've never had more goods available on demand at a lower price with a click of a button. And we have never been more discontented as a nation. And the advertising industry is actually a purveyor of discontent. Back in the 70s, the average person was exposed to 500 ads per day, which sounds like a lot of ads to me. Today, the average person is exposed to between four and 10,000 ads per day. And every one of them peddles discontent. Advertisements used to tout how their particular product was better than their competitor's product. But now, Madison Avenue enriches itself by convincing us that we must have the latest and greatest gadget that we cannot possibly live without the newest version of a perfectly functional phone that we bought a year ago. And that we can't possibly wear the clothes that we bought last year because they are oh so out of style. And even worse, advertising tries to convince us that what we buy defines us. 
Pastor and author John Mark Comer puts it this way, we now get our meaning in life from what we consume. And by the way, our planet is taking a beating as a result of our discontent. We deplete natural resources to produce stuff that we don't need, and we pollute the land with the perfectly good stuff that we grow tired of and throw away so that we can replace it with new stuff that we will grow tired of and throw away. And so it goes. The peddling of discontent is pervasive and sneaky and a little scary. We, we have fleets of Amazon delivery trucks and we have delivery drones and we have delivery robots and it makes it easier and easier for us to buy more and more stuff that we don't need, that we probably can't afford, and which certainly is not going to make us happy despite what it promises it will do. I was reminded of this in a particularly embarrassing and personal way this week. There's a, there's a, a sugarless gum that I like. It's a particular one. I chew it a lot. And if I buy it by the bag, it actually gets kind of pricey. So the other day I went online to see if I could get my gum in larger quantity for a better price. And by golly, I could. Or should I say, by gum, I could. And so I ordered six bags of gum at 1.24 p.m. And by 2.09 p.m. it was sitting on my front porch. Now, can I just say how amazing and cool and terrifying that is. Most of us actually have been sucked into this more is better mentality, whether we even know it or not. These are the cultural waters in which we swim. I've been reading American literature lately, John Steinbeck, a lot of Steinbeck, and his last novel was entitled The Winter of Our Discontent, a phrase borrowed obviously from Shakespeare. But I don't believe that our discontent is seasonal anymore. We live in a culture that breeds discontent, that fans the flame of discontent. We want to be happy. We are persuaded that we can acquire our way to happiness. And yet deep down in our souls, we know that's not true or possible. The Apostle Paul has something to say to that about that today. Uh, a reminder that Paul is in prison, he's on trial for his life, and while he is there, he writes a letter to his friends in Philippi. One of the things he's encouraging them to believe is that they can have joy, that they need to fight for their joy, no matter what their circumstance might be. And at the conclusion of his letter, for we come this day to the end of our series, Paul offers this secret to living the joy-filled life despite your circumstances. We find it in Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. I urge you to pull your Bible out if you've got it. Pull out your app if you've got that. And read along with me, Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. The letter of Philippians is actually a thank you note. It was a note sent by Paul to his friends in Philippi to thank them for the financial gift that they had made to him while he was in prison. I reminded you earlier that in those days, in the time of Rome, prisoners were not provided food or clothing or anything while they were in prison. If you wanted that, your family and friends were going to have to provide it. The Philippians sent a financial gift to Paul to help him with that. It was particularly poignant because none of his other churches did the same. And he points that out in, part, in, in one part of his letter. So Paul's writing them a thank you note from prison. He's saying, thank you for your generosity. I'm really grateful for it. But as grateful as he is, he doesn't want them to assume that without their help, that he would have been hopeless. I want to remind you what he said. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me just say that one more time. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned. Let's start right there. Paul tells us that contentment is a learned behavior. It is something that we must practice. It requires discipline. It requires intentionality. Apparently, it is not a natural thing for us to be content, and it shouldn't come as any great surprise. We Christians believe every human being has sin, is, is infected with sin, and what is the core issue of sin if it is not self-centeredness, selfishness? That is the core issue of our, of our battle. Uh, it's the basic human struggle is this battle of our instinct to look out for our own interests, sometimes often at the interests of others. And that self-centeredness is chronic, it is universal, and it is terminal. It is deadly. We need saving from it, which is exactly why we needed a Savior, Jesus. That's what Jesus came, was to save us from our chronic self-centeredness towards others and towards God. That work has been done for us on the cross and by the resurrection of Christ. It's called redemption. Thankfully, this is a free gift of God, not something we have to acquire or that we can earn. And it happens in the moment that we surrender to Christ. It's a wonderful, that is the gospel. That in the moment we surrender to Christ, we are set free from this self-centeredness, this selfishness. But we must also learn to live a new way of life. That process is called sanctification, and it is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We gather here every Sunday in order to continue to learn what it means to be more and more like Jesus, to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Paul says, I have learned I have learned. He says, this didn't come naturally for me. I had to work at this. I had to be persistent in this. I have learned, however, to be content. And so can you, he says. And so can you, I say. And so can I. I have learned. I've learned to be content. The word in the Greek is actually a common word from the teaching of the philosophy called Stoicism. You've probably heard of Stoicism. We talk about someone being stoic. 
The word content means in the Stoic teaching self-sufficient, self-sufficient. But Paul in a moment is going to put a twist on this. He likes to do that, borrow words and then use, it, use them in a different way. But Paul, but it also could mean contained, it can mean adequate, it can mean satisfied. This word can mean all of those things. But we might best sum it up with this English word, enough. Enough. I have, when we are content, we are saying, I have enough. Contentment is a sense of peaceful sufficiency. Contentment is a sense of peaceful sufficiency. And Paul says, I'm content. I've learned to be content. I like the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Listen to what he says. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Paul is saying, even when I was poor and hungry, I learned to be content. Which is, if you are poor and hungry, it might sound like a really, a quite a remarkable thing to say. Because poverty and homelessness and hunger are inhuman conditions to which the church ought to attend itself. And in fact, if you look at the early story of the history of the Christian church in the book of Acts, we find that one big part of who they were was caring for each other, and especially the orphans and the widows, those who were in the most dire of straits in their culture. I wonder if the church was really doing her job, if we could put the government out of the social service industry. I think we would do a better job. And I'm proud of the fact that Chapel Hill, through your giving, through our mercy ministry, ministries have given away tens of thousands of dollars. I see some of you who are part of that ministry every year to those who are in need. I'm proud of our commitment to fish and doing our part to help them build their new building to serve our community and our region. I'm proud of our, of our relationship with Habitat for Humanity and our commitment to sponsor a new house in Gig Harbor for the first time in many, many years. And by the way, all of those things are happening by, as a result of our Beyond These Walls initiative. I'm so grateful that your church, because of your giving, is actively alleviating poverty and hunger and homelessness. That is our work. We are at work in that way, which can so devastate the people's lives. Having said that, I will also say this. I have been in countries of incredible, incredible poverty. Con countries like parts of Mexico, for extreme. And many of you who have traveled on our trips, Quentin, I remember working on a house with you down there. We have been on trips together, and we, we, we see these homes that we would not store our, our lawnmowers in, but they have families of six and eight that are living there. And yet we also see in those families a sense of joy, am I right? Joy and peace and, and delight and happiness that oftentimes puts our community to shame. 
A friend of mine who travels to Guatemala to serve the poor says he is often tempted to say to the people he meets, don't you guys know that you have nothing? What do you have to be so happy about? And yet these poor families teach us that it is possible to live with little and still live in contentment. That's what Paul says he has done. What might be harder is the other half of what Paul says, because he said we can be content when we are wealthy. And that might seem counterintuitive. Of course you can be content if you're wealthy. But the research says that the more people have, the less content they are. Princeton University did a study and asked how much money a person needs to be content. And they came up with a number. The answer is $75,000 a year. If you make a salary of $75,000 a year, this study said you will be content. And true enough, contentment seemed to rise as salaries rose up to that point, about seventy-five dollars But here's what's disturbing. Contentment after $75,000 stalls. And many cases, it begins to drop. In other words, past a certain point, the richer you get, the less content you become. And I think this is astounding and perhaps enlightening. Getting richer does not make you more content. And you think, wow, maybe Jesus really knew what he was talking about. Imagine that. Whether you are rich or poor, Paul says, as I have, you can learn to be content. So what is the secret to this? There's a movement afoot in our country that offers one suggestion. It's called minimalism. I wonder if you've heard about it, minimalism. And it is this movement that urges people to radically reduce their consumption, to learn to live with less and less and less. There's actually a, a movie on Netflix called Minimalism. I commend it to you. And it's about the two advocates of this movement who have traveled across the country uh, touting its benefits. They're kind of like minimalist evangelists. And they promise contentment, they promise peace, if you will learn to live with less and less. That is their gospel. Now, I suspect all of us could use a little more minimalism. A little more minimalism. I get a little minimalism. I, we could all use some. Cindy and I have actually reached a point in our life where if we buy something, we say, okay, then what do we got to get rid of? If we buy something, we got to have a place to put it. So what are we going to get rid of to make a room for that? And that has been good for us, actually. Living with less is a, is a good idea, and I think we'd all benefit. But really, this is just another version of stoicism. This is just another version of self-reliance. We'll try harder. We will sacrifice. We will do with less. We will give more away. Is that really the path to the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here? I don't think so, and I think he would say no. Remember I told you that Paul had a little twist? He uses that stoic word for, for content. But he twists it around because contentment in that Stoic tradition meant self-reliance. But self is not the secret to Paul's contentment. And we discover his secret in chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him, him who strengthens me. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love that verse. I have memorized that verse. I have prayed that verse and repeated that verse over and over. At one point, I remember handing out rubber bands to the congregation, asking you to wear it for one week, and every time you saw that rubber band on your hand, to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Steph Curry, who may be the greatest shooting guard ever, he writes, I can do all things on every pair of his basketball shoes. You might know that already. In fact, he has a new namesake shoe that has Philippians 4.13 stamped on the inside of the tongue of the shoe. Curry is a Christian and, and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's my mantra. It's how I get up for games and why I play the way I do. And I have to say, I admire the boldness of his Christian witness. It's refreshing, isn't it, in the world of professional uh, sports to have uh, some, a young man like this witness to his faith so proudly and boldly. Problem is, as inspiring as it is, this is not what this verse is talking about. The context for Philippians 4.13 is Paul's discussion on contentment. I want to quote Pastor Comer again, whom I quoted earlier. He writes, in context, Paul wasn't writing about overcoming some allegorical Goliath in our lives. He's writing about one of the greatest enemies of the human soul, discontentment. That nagging feeling of always wanting more. Not just more stuff, but more life. The truth is, you can be happy right here, right now through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's secret to contentment was not self-sufficiency, it was Christ-sufficiency. It was his complete dependence, his complete trust upon Jesus to meet all of his needs, not only his material needs, but his relational needs, his emotional needs, even his ego need, that, the desire all of us have to be of worth, to be of value. And just in case he was being too subtle when he wrote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, in case we're not sure who the him is, we find out in verse 19 where he writes, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the him he's talking about. That is our path to contentment. Another pastor, Rick Ezel, puts all of this issue in pretty sharp perspective when he writes this, and I invite you to listen as if he was presenting this question to you. He said, may I ask you a question? What is the one thing separating you from joy? What is the one thing separating you from joy? How do you fill in the blank? I will be happy when, when I am healed, when I am promoted, when I am married, when I am single, when I am rich, how would you finish the statement? He continues, now with your answer firmly in mind, answer this, if your ship never comes in, if your dream never comes true, if the situation never changes, could you be happy? If not, then you are living in the claws of discontentment. 
unquote. Billionaire John D. Rockefeller once, was once asked, how much money is enough? His reply, just a little bit more. We are all afflicted, afflicted with affluenza, and it is a disease more contagious and more deadly to our souls than COVID ever could be. It is the lie of discontent. It is more, more. I need more. And the peace of contentment is enough. I have enough. And only Christ can make us strong enough to beat back the devil of discontent. So I ask you this morning, beloved, which is the cry of your heart? Honestly, you know what it is. Is the cry of your heart more? I need more. Or is the cry of your heart enough? I have enough. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so, Lord, we lay this part of our lives before you as we lay some part every week before you. This might be the touchy one because we get touchy about money, possessions, and our stuff. We get touchy about that. And yet, Jesus, you talked a lot about it. You seem to know that our relationship with our stuff and the question of who owns whom was a big deal for our happiness, our peace, our joy. And so, Lord, I, I just ask you to speak to every heart this day. There are some who could honestly say, I am content. I have enough. There are others here, perhaps more of us, who would say, if only I had this, if only I could accomplish this, then I will be content. And of course, that's the lie. You are our source of contentment as you have been the source of every good gift and blessing that we enjoy. So Lord, I pray that you would convict every heart that needs to be convicted, comfort every heart that needs to be comforted. As we walk away this day, may we reflect honestly about the state of our own soul whether or not we can say with Paul, I've learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.